So recently, partly because of Bob's talk last night, I've been thinking a little bit about this, that wonderful Rumi poem that I think many of you know that starts out this being human is a guest house. And then it goes on to list all the difficult things that sometimes invade your guest house. And I've been very caught by that first line, this being human. Because this being human is a problem, (laughs) isn't it? It's really strange. And then I got to thinking about Rube Goldberg. Do any of you remember Rube Goldberg? And Rube, you know, you will say something's a Rube Goldberg contraption. So I thought I'd bring you a Rube Goldberg contraption just so you could think about it in terms of being human. This was the self-operating napkin. The self-operating napkin is activated when the soup spoon is raised to the mouth, pulling the string, and thereby jerking the ladle, which throws the cracker past the parrot. The parrot jumps after the cracker, and the perch tilts, upsetting the seeds into the pail. Extra weight in the pail pulls the cord, which opens and lights the automatic lighter, which sets off the skyrocket, which causes the sickle to cut the string and allow the pendulum with the attached napkin to swing back and forth, thereby wiping the chin. (laughs) So you have to admit that being human is kind of like that sometimes. That it seems like it ought to be simple and it's very complex and very convoluted and very tangled up. And certainly as we've listened to you in the groups in these last couple of days, um, so much suffering sometimes, you know, bodily suffering and suffering of the heart and mind and trauma and reverberations from our past. One, John Travis, one of our teachers here, likes to say, may your past not hold you in captivity. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And many of us in our families, we've suffered a lot, you know, these families of ours, they're really tricky. And many of us were given a story, right? There was some story about who you were in that family. Maybe you were the responsible one or maybe you were the good one, or maybe you were the bad one, or the mischievous one, or the lazy one, or the utterly hopeless one, or the really smart one, or the not-quite-so-smart one. And somehow the issue of perfection was always in front of us, and, and we had some way in which that's who we were. We, we thought in that way. So Robert Bly says this. He offers another option. He says, think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, maybe wounded and deranged. Or think that a moose has risen out of the lake 
and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. So tonight, I want to explore the issue of suffering, what causes it, and the possibility of its ending. And so, because I love stories, I want to include a few stories in the talk. So the first story is about a man whose name was Angulimala, who lived at the time of the Buddha. And he was a young man, and in fact, when he was young, his name was Ahimsa, which meant non-harming. And the story has it that um, he went to a special spiritual school, and he was training in the particular practices of the school, and he was brilliant. He was very, very adept at everything that was being taught, He learned it quickly. He went deeply into his practice. His teacher thought he was fabulous. And the other students were jealous. And you know how that is. After a while, when people are jealous, then they start talking. And after a while, they decided to start a rumor. And they started a rumor that Ahimsa was sleeping with the wife of the teacher. So the rumor went around and the teacher heard it a few times and he didn't believe it because this was his beloved student, his best student, who was so adept. But, you know, that kind of dripping water thing, after he heard the story and he heard the story and he heard the story, he started to be suspicious. Maybe it was true. Maybe it was true. And then he decided it was true and he got really upset and really angry. So he called Ahimsa in and he said, Dear student, I have a very special practice for you, one that I would only give to my most advanced, most brilliant student. And it's a very strange practice. He said, I want you to go out and I want you to kill 1,000 people and I want you to bring me proof that you have killed them. You have to watch out for teachers sometimes. (laughs) So that's one thread. The other thread is mine. So I was raised in New England, in a fairly strict family, you know, they... Was a, I was born in 1941, so I grew up in the 50s, you know, housewives and, I don't know, everything being perfect and, you know, how it was in those days. Lots of fairly rigid ideas of what was right and what was wrong and how you were supposed to be, pretty conventional. I got married and had a couple of kids and got divorced and got married again and I'd survived a major, major crisis with that husband, and we'd been together, oh, let's see, this is about 15 years ago, so we'd been together about 15 years at that point. 
And one day, in the middle of a therapy session, the two of us, with our therapist, the therapist said, Russell, isn't there something you need to tell Mary Grace? (laughs) Poor man. And Russell sort of swallowed, and he said, well, he said, I've had this idea that I'd like to go to this festival in the desert called Burning Man. I had no idea what Burning Man it was. It completely, I teach retreats, you know, very different world. So I began to sniff around a little bit, you know, what is this Burning Man thing that he was so scared to tell me about? And all I could find out was, you know, sex and drugs and naked women and... I was sure, you know, that this was the end. He would see some beautiful naked babe who was all painted in something and he'd go off with her. So then there's another story. We've got four sets of stories here. Keep, you have to keep track of them. So the third story is about the Emperor Wu. And the Emperor Wu was a great warrior. He was lived in China of about the 13th century. And people really loved him. He was a good emperor. And he was also a spiritual seeker. And he kept trying to find out more about spiritual practice. But, you know, he was the emperor. And so people kind of could only see his role. And so it was hard for him to get teachings, but he kept on trying. And then there's your story. So I want you to reflect a little on, that's the fourth strand, is your own individual story. We've heard, some of us, some pieces of it. And each of you carries the burden of your own story, your own sorrows, your joys, the things you've done, the things you haven't done, the relationships you've had, all the labels that you've had over the years, things that people have said about you. It's really interesting to think, what is your story? You know, what ideas do you have about yourself? What you're capable of, what you're not capable of? Where did they come from, from your family of origin or from people you've known? What kinds of defensive patterns and habits have you developed over the years? Or what just sort of plain old habits, they're not even defensive, they're just what you do. Where are the places where you might say, I am a person who... It's a really dangerous line. I am a person who, who always, whatever it is that you always do. So the Buddha, over and over again, throughout all of the texts, teaches about the nature of suffering, the origin of suffering, the development of suffering. He yearned for that suffering to end. He teaches about it so much, Sometimes I'm reminded that some years ago now I I sat a long period of retreat by myself and I was reading one of the major texts, the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle-length discourses. And I was wanting to read it through just to get a sense of what is it that the Buddha was teaching. So I wasn't being a scholar, I wasn't picking it apart, I was just reading it. And after a while I went, the Buddha had a shtick. Just like, just like Jack Cornfield and Sylvia Borstein and Bob Stahl and Mary Grace Orr and 
all the other teachers, you know, everybody has kind of their own thing that they always talk about. And the Buddha had his own thing that he always talked about. And it was about the ending of suffering over and over and over. He wanted so much for all beings to learn to live with serenity and equanimity and to be happy. So his core teaching and the first teaching, and according to the tradition, was his teaching that's called the Four Noble Truths. So I want to go over them. Many of you know them very well, but they are the, you know, the basic bread and butter of this practice. So in the first of them, he said, there is suffering. Yeah. So if you thought it was a mistake or you know, you're the only one, you know, you can let go of that because it, it is suffering. And, and he said this needs to be comprehended. It needs to be understood. There's the ordinary kind of suffering, the pain of our existence, the pain of bodies, the pain of Cindy's broken ankle today, the pain of your broken heart, the pain of your back or your knees or your stomach, whatever. And then there's the suffering that comes from impermanence, that nothing is satisfactory. But the worst form of suffering, and this is in the second of the Noble Truths, is that we are really attached to having things be different from the way that they are. Isn't that interesting? If it's impermanent, we want it to be permanent. If it seems like it's here for a long time, we want it to be less permanent. You know, we want more of this and less of that. It goes on ceaselessly. The mind is always wanting things to be a little bit different. This is not the ordinary suffering. You know, there's a wonderful teaching in the 12-step programs that says pain is required and suffering is optional. And that sums up the Buddha's, what the Buddha had to say, actually. So we're talking about attachment, addiction, possessiveness, you know, the need to control, these are the places where we really create suffering. So the third of these teachings, which is the really good news part, is that it's possible for this to end. It is possible, the Buddha said, to live in a way in which you are free from this kind of suffering. And then the fourth of the truth is the path out, that there's a way, there's a, a set of things that you can learn and practice and, and, and walk so that you can come to this place of freedom. So the Eightfold Path, wise understanding, wise intention, living your life wisely, so being careful around speech and action and choice of livelihood, and then training the mind, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So that's one piece of these very core teachings of the Buddha. And there's an additional one. So the second thing that he taught, almost as relentlessly as the ending of suffering, was the importance of understanding that our actions have consequences. Every action, even the smallest, has consequences. And that in any given moment, we are living out of the reverberation of 
not only our own actions, but those of our family and friends, our nations, our cultures, our species. This is known as karma. And the word karma actually means action. It's often spoken of really simplistically, that's my karma. But it's not. It's a very, very complicated notion. And um, the Buddha says it is so huge and so complicated that if you try to think of the karma that created any particular moment, you will go crazy because your mind can't comprehend it. It's too big. So you could imagine the karma of this particular moment. So, your mom, your dad, your first spiritual teacher, your first grade teacher, your pet dog who died recently, the people who built this place, the people who donated money for this place, their moms, their dads, the fact that somehow Buddhism has come to America and and it's finding a place here, and the city fathers of Fairfax and Marin County who allowed us to be here. And it just, you know, you start thinking of all of the things that have happened and all of the actions, and it is truly enormous. So, we have a moment in which something happens, some event. Something, somebody says something, somebody does something. And there is a moment of perception that happens. And that moment, in that moment, the mind is colored by our past experiences and our past habits. You're informed by those. But it's also clouded. So sometimes this is useful. Sometimes what your past experience says, that's a truck coming down the road at 75 miles an hour. Get out of the way. And that's very useful. And you get out of the way. But sometimes we're not so clear. We're just reactive. And we continue out of that reactivity the cycle of suffering. It's really hard to be fresh in any given moment. In fact, you probably can't do it. So you could think, for example, of maybe you live with somebody. Most of us at some time in our lives have lived with someone or are married to them or whatever. And they say to you, I'll be home for dinner, dear, at six o'clock. And you say, great, I'll have it ready. And six o'clock comes and goes and 6.30 comes and goes, and maybe 7 o'clock comes and goes, and somewhere in there, at least if you're me, you start thinking, where are they? Where are they? They aren't here, you know, and you may have, you know, maybe you're tired, or maybe you're naturally anxious, or there's all kinds of things, and maybe at let's just say 7.45, they walk in the door. In such moments, we often do not see clearly. In such moments, our minds are clouded by our conditioning. And in Buddhist understanding, this is a form of ignorance. It's called ignorance. And you know, 
we often can't see clearly because we're seeing through that lens of memory, maybe the previous latenesses of this person and the stories that you might have had. How many times I've certainly had people squashed on the freeway all the time. You know, that that surely must be what's keeping them. And so because of these old memories and old stories, our consciousness has a particular flavor. It's defensive, it's angry, it's desirous, it's terrified. But we don't catch this, do we? We forget that those lenses are in there. They're like contact lenses, you know. You forget after a while that they're in there. And we forget that we're, we're seeing through them and we think we're seeing clearly. Joseph Goldstein used to say so many times when, in the years when I was sitting with him, see how we build houses of thought and then we inhabit them. And so we live in these houses of our stories and we see our experience through the windows of those houses. So the Buddha saw this. He knew it and he understood it. And he gave a teaching, and it was called the Cycle of Dependent Origination. And in this cycle, the Buddha teaches and describes how we create this endless cycle around and around and around and around of suffering, endless numbers of walled, rigid houses in the mind. Sometimes this teaching is understood to be the building of these houses as lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. But it's actually also a very sophisticated psychological teaching about the cycles of suffering in our own lifetime. So we come to this moment, the moment when something happens, and we come, as I mentioned, conditioned by our previous experience and things happen and there's a very, very fast process of perception that, that arises in that moment. We connect with what is happening, we recognize it, we name it, we make contact with it. It's all just like that and very, very fast. And frequently, as we look through those windows of our conditioning, we react based on the story. I like this. I don't like that. No. Yes. I want it. You know, get rid of it. So, you know, when your loved one comes home late, do you react from the story? A lot of times, yes, right? Or without it. You know, I can't tell you how many times, certainly in that first marriage, I reacted out of the story and got really upset and angry because I was scared. I was scared, but I didn't see that I was scared. I was just annoyed. This very moment is so important, this place where the event happens and we make contact with it because it's where, actually, you can continue the cycle or you can end it. So in the mindfulness teachings, we began to touch on this this morning. It's the place of Vedana. This is your clue, is the Vedana of an experience, the feeling tone. So the place where the experience is pleasant, yummy. Mm. Or it's unpleasant, ugh. Or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's sort of neutral, 
It's, it's, and so it's a trigger point. I've come to think of this as a trigger point. And it triggers desire if it's yummy, you know. Think about today. You know, maybe some of you had a really great day. The weather was beautiful, the wind kept it cool, your back didn't hurt so much, the instructions sat while you enjoying the parts of the body going up and down and around, flesh, sinew, bone, bone marrow, kidneys, you know. Oh, that really great day. Yummy. The food was good. The soup was delicious tonight. And so what happens? The mind goes, hmm, you know, maybe I could set a longer retreat. I could come to the two-month retreat. Or I could, I could go to Thailand. Now there's a good idea. I wonder how much it costs to go to Thailand. And pretty soon you're gone, right? Having this wonderful thing because you had a great day. Conversely, of course, you may have had a terrible day and your back got worse and you didn't like the soup, nor do you think the 32 parts of the body are worth much. And you're thinking about, you know, a trip to Hawaii, it would have been about the same price as what it costs to be here at Spirit Rock. Next time, that's what I'm going to do. Or it wasn't either. And then we can get a little bored and we get spacey and we're gone. So it's a very interesting place where that triggers these three poisons, they're called greed and hatred and delusion. And it's when, those are also called obscurations. So when they're there, you can't see and you don't act skillfully. So when we're not seeing clearly, we are continuing the suffering. I'm yelling at my poor late partner and we're caught in the story seeing through that lens again. If you don't relate to the late partner, probably everybody here has fallen in love with the wrong person at some time or another, right? And you're madly in love and you think that they are utterly divine. Utterly divine. The best person you've met in a long time. They have every good quality. And what happens six weeks later when some few things have happened and all of a sudden you realize, were you seeing them clearly? No. You were seeing them through the lens of your desire and your story about who they were. You were not seeing clearly. We only see what we want to see through that lens. And we don't see what is truly there. And hurt and pain and trouble arise. And this is the enormous suffering. It's not the ordinary suffering. It's not just the pain of life. This is the place where we're trying to make reality fit our story. And it doesn't. And we keep trying to put them together. We desperately want things to be different from the way that they are. It's really important to get that you cannot change what brings you to a particular moment. You do arrive in any given moment with your conditioning. We talked about that in a couple of my groups today. You know, how different mind states arise the, the, because it is, something is unpleasant or it is pleasant. And so the mind begins to do its thing. It, 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 
it comes up again out of the conditioning. What, out of whatever you were told about yourselves, about whatever you believe about yourselves, we are the inheritors of our own karma. And it does reverberate in our lives. And you will experience different situations as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And they will push your buttons. That is just how it is. The problem is that we don't recognize the feeling tone. We let it slide by. We don't get that it is likely to trigger the greed and the hatred and delusion. We don't remember that that lens is there. You know, it's the forgetting that we have the contact lenses in. And then we are kidnapped. Somebody in my group used that phrase today. I really liked it. We are kidnapped by the desire and the aversion and the delusion. And then we continue the next chapter. You know, I yelled at that poor man. And and then he got angrier and then he went off and stayed out even later. And the cycle went around again. So our friend Angulimala, remember Angulimala? So he believed his teacher because his teacher had been very good to him and they'd had a really great relationship. And he kind of thought this was a very strange teaching indeed and he didn't really want to do it. And he stalled and fiddled around for a while but finally he went out and he began. And he killed somebody and then he killed another somebody. And of course each time he did it, it created you know difficulties in his own being and then it became easier. And so he got up to 999 out of a thousand. Of course by then he had a reputation and people were really scared if he was seen in the neighborhood. And one day when he was out, he was looking for his 1,000th victim, then he'd be done. And oh, he was called Angulimala because what he did was he chopped off the little fingers of his victims and he strung them around in this big necklace around his neck because that was going to be his proof that he had killed the thousand. So an Angulimala is actually a mala, like beads, you know, some of you have malas, of Angulis, which is the little finger. So he's out, He's thinking, maybe I'll go get mom, which in his day, you know, killing your mother is a really bad thing to do. You're not supposed to do it at all. So he sees this old man walking in the forest with robes on and his bowl. Well, you know who the old man is, right? It's the Buddha out for a walk. And he thinks, aha, maybe I don't have to kill mom. I'll get this guy instead. In my story... Russell went off to Burning Man the first time and I shook in my boots the entire time he was gone and he came home and he actually seemed kind of sweet and happy to be home and a little more vulnerable than I remembered him a lot of the time. And, um, and then he went, then he wanted to go another year. I was like, oh, Really? And so he went again, and I suffered again, and I was scared again. And so this went on for five or six years. And I still, I really wasn't sure about this Burning Man stuff. And then he got involved with a really good service project at Burning Man on the playa. 
which works to end sexual harassment and sexual assault there. There is such a thing. And the other thing that happened was he's a, great, he's a really good photographer. So he began bringing home these really great pictures of art installations and the desert and the mountains. And I like the desert, I really do. So then I kind of thought, hmm, this is a little interesting. One night, at one time he went and I spent a lot of time thinking, he's going to come home with purple hair. I know he is. And I realized I could not live with a man who had purple hair. That was going to be too much. So the night he came home, he called me from Donner Summit. And I said, okay, I have to get this out of the way. I, just, I know you, this couldn't possibly be true. But what color is your hair? And there was a long pause. <laughs> and he said, magenta. And then he said, but it will wash out, which was sort of true. So, you know, he kept going, and I kept having temper tantrums and worrying. And the Emperor Wu, our good friend the Emperor Wu, nobody would tell him the truth about practice. They'd give him simple, little superficial things. Eat only vegetables, or you know, do this kind of exercise or whatever. It wasn't like the emperor who had no clothes where somebody finally did tell him the truth. They just kept telling him to do the easy things, build a monastery, you know, don't worry about it too much, you're the emperor. And one day, into the court of the emperor Wu, he came in and in came this guy who was big, really tall. And Chinese people, especially in those days, were not so tall had red hair and blue eyes, lots of energy, showed up in the Chinese court. And in your story, you can think about, well, what kept going on for you out of your story, your conditioning with your family and your ideas of how you should be or how you shouldn't be or what it was that you were and what the labels were that you should be staying with. So here's a poem from Dana Falls. She says, Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid, and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. And here's the kicker. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, 
Don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So when we don't see clearly, things get complicated, we don't wake up, and they get worse, and it's confusing, and it's unsatisfactory. So the really good news is the good news of that third noble truth. We can catch ourselves before reacting. So you can really work with that second foundation of mindfulness. You can notice this experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neither. You might take a moment right now. What is this experience? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Or is it neither? Because if you do that, then you can keep the reactivity, you can keep the desire and the aversion or the delusion, the not seeing clearly, the neither pleasant nor other pleasant, unpleasant place from arising. That's very, very important. This is pleasant. Can I just stay with it? You don't have to make it unpleasant. There's nothing wrong with it being pleasant. Just don't react. Respond, maybe, appropriately, skillfully, but not react. You get the difference? It's really important. Pema Chudran has a wonderful practice. She makes a practice when anyone walks toward her of noticing what her reaction is. What is her reaction to this? I like him, I don't like him, I want him, I don't want him, whatever. You know, and beginning to notice your reactions will help you to work backward to that place of catching, catching that moment before you actually react. So Angulimala started to run after the Buddha. He was going to get this guy. And the Buddha kept walking really slowly. And in one of those amazing things that you might see in the movies, Angulimala ran faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And he couldn't catch the Buddha. So the Buddha's walking slowly. Angulimala's racing as fast as he can. Finally he yells out, Stop, old man, stop! And the Buddha stopped and he turned and he looked at Angulimala and he said, I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And in that moment, something changed for Angulimala. So for me, I began to get curious because after all, he kept going, he kept coming back he got more vulnerable and more open, he began to meditate, all kinds of things were changing in his life. What does happen out there on the playa? You know, I wasn't, I I knew he wasn't, I was quite certain, I knew he was not running around. There wasn't anything that I I began to understand that he wasn't going to do that. That was our deal. I loved the pictures, the pictures were fabulous. I really appreciated his service project. I thought it was interesting and was good what he was doing. And I began to get kind of curious. What is happening there? And I began to step out of my story. The Emperor Wu 
when he saw this great big guy, he got startled. And he saw that someone really different had come into his court. So he thought, okay, I'm going to check this guy out. So he's the emperor, right? So he said, what about the merit of building all these monasteries? Because he'd built a lot of monasteries at that point. And in traditional Buddhist thinking, this gets you merit. And Bodhidharma kind of, no merit. Well, you don't tell the emperor, no merit, right? And I was like, what? So then Bodhidharma said, well, what about these holy teachings? And Bodhidharma thought for a moment, scratched his head, and he said, nothing special, vast emptiness. Hmm. And so then the emperor Wu said to him, who are you? Who are you? And the Emperor Wu said, uh, the Emperor Wu, Bodhidharma said, I don't know. Haven't got a clue. So something enormous shifted for the Emperor, for the Emperor Wu in that moment. And you, who knows what you did? Maybe you went to therapy, or you went to a sitting group, or you read a book or you found a relationship with someone who was a little different and was really willing to work on it. Or maybe you got sober, or maybe you came to Spirit Rock and went on a retreat. Whatever it was you did, and there's probably lots of other options that I haven't listed, you know, maybe your story also began to dissolve. So Angulimala stopped living the lie that his teacher had told him, he immediately became a monk. The Buddha signed him on right there on the spot. Isn't that amazing? I've always thought, whoa, that was a big step. And actually, he practiced and practiced and became an arahant, a fully enlightened being. Although he also continued to experience the karma of having been a murderer and on at least a few occasions was stoned in villages when he went through. In my story, I got more curious. And the other thing that happened was I got really tired of being afraid. Because that was a lot of my story, was I heard these people were different. I don't do that kind of thing. I teach retreats where everybody's quiet and they keep their eyes down. You know. <laughs> so not, not what happens at Burning Man. But finally I got tired of my own rigidity. And so in 2010, I dyed my hair purple and helped to load up the car, and went off to Burning Man. And you know, I found that it's a koan. Do you know what a koan is? A koan is a zen, it's like a riddle that is unthinkable. Burning Man is kind of unthinkable. You can't, it's like going to India. I mean, the mind just gives up after a while. It's so amazing and crazy and... So it challenged everything I knew about myself, everything I knew about myself, in its awfulness and its wonder and the harshness of the desert and the difficulty of being there and all this, going and walking around the playa sometimes. You know the scene from Star Wars, the Star Wars cantina? You know, with all those beings? That's what it's like. 
you know, all these strange beings and strange costumes and they're all dusty and they look like they've been out there for forever. And people doing things that I didn't really agree with and, and lots of really lovely, wonderful people and astounding art and vast, empty space. And I realized I didn't have to react. I didn't have to push it away. I didn't have to take it, take it for mine either. I could just find what worked for me and respond. Less judgment, more acceptance. So... A few weeks ago, it was my fourth burn, as they say. So I'm still going. So, and for you, the question is, where will you find freedom? Or how will you continue to find it? That's what you're all here for, I think, this week. There is this point where we can interrupt the cycle. And we can learn to be present. We can catch that moment before the reaction begins. We can see clearly. That's what vipassana means. That's the name of this practice. Seeing clearly. We can step free from our story. And this is done moment after moment after moment, over and over and over again. Where is the place of freedom in this very moment? That's the question. The Emperor Wu since I've already told you, had met Bodhidharma, who was a great Zen state sage. He actually never knew this. He never knew this. Because Bodhidharma disappeared almost immediately after answering his questions. But Bodhidharma stripped the lenses from the emperor's eyes, and the emperor began to question the whole story of who he was. And so the story about him is that he went on to live fairly happily. Every now and then he would sneak off to the monastery and sign on as the lowest servant, practically a slave. And he'd scrub toilets and sweep the floor and do the practices and really enjoyed being a monk. And then after a while in the court they'd decide that they needed him back and so they'd go pay the monastery a lot of money and they'd get him back and then he'd be the emperor for a while again. Probably a good deal for the monasteries, I think. But, so he didn't completely escape his emperor karma, but he certainly stepped out of that old story. So you know, you could try on what happened with the emperor Wu. You can be Bodhidharma, I mean, you can be the emperor Wu, and sort of say to yourself, who are you standing there? You could try it now while I'm telling you this. And then you can answer, I don't know. And try on not knowing. Not knowing. Not stepping outside of those stories and those labels for just a few minutes. Maybe even just a bit of a minute. Remember all those images of the cosmos that I mentioned on Monday? You know, there we are looking at all those stars and galaxies. You know, what am I? I haven't a clue. I haven't a clue. So we let go of even that most basic lens, the one that says that I have a solid and separate and identifiable self. In this moment of presence, of perceiving clearly, when we respond out of awareness, rather than out of our reactive stories, this is a moment of freedom. This is the place where we've torn down 
the house of the story, at least for the moment. The Buddha says we can do this. He says we can step out of our stories. We cannot build the houses. We can come to the ending of suffering, of nirvana. So this is what the Buddha says, and that's what I'm going to end with. He says, Being myself, subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, seeing danger in what is subject to those things, and seeking the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage, nirvana, I attained it. The knowledge and vision was in me. My deliverance is unassailable. This is my last birth. There is now no renewal of being. So he stepped off the wheel of suffering, of the cycles of suffering. And he goes on and says, Seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and ever again. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridge pole is demolished too. My mind has now attained the unformed nirvana and reached the end of every kind of craving. So stay right where you are and let's just breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for listening. And now we have some time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.